I invite you to open up to the book of Ecclesiastes. Just a reminder, we'll be using the closing hymn after the service, I mean after the sermon. Um, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. I believe it was 457. I don't have a bulletin in front of me. Um, And we'll save the communion portion for next Sunday. I'll be reading Ecclesiastes 1, 1 to 3, as well as uh, Psalm 144, but as I mentioned last week, as I begin a series that will be going through Ecclesiastes verse by verse, I thought it's wise to mention why we do this. I have done topical sermons already, so you know that I'm not opposed to preaching topically, as that's what we've been doing all this time since I began, but... I do prioritize preaching through books, which is what we will see from not all the time, but almost from here on out, preaching through Ecclesiastes verse by verse. Then we're going to be in James verse by verse. And the reason we do this, there are several, and I just want to mention one in particular today, and that is to save you from me. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is if I were to preach my uh, topics that I think are important every week, you would just hear me saying what I want to hear or what I want you to hear. Every week, I would pick a topic. You know, the joke is for, say, uh, when I was a Baptist pastor, they would say that no matter what the sermon was about, the sovereignty of God and believer's baptism. And you would always bring up believer's baptism because you're a Baptist or infant baptism as a Presbyterian. You're always preaching that one topic that I think is important. Well, as much as that may be important to do now and again, what's more important is that you hear exactly what God would have you hear. And the scripture is clear that you're to preach the whole counsel of God. And to preach the whole counsel of God, you have to preach every verse. And so that's what we're going to do in this uh, point, we're going to be doing it through the book of Ecclesiastes, which is uh, the Word of God. And so that's one of the reasons I'll probably in the next few weeks bring up a few more. But that is our focus this morning, Ecclesiastes 1, 1 to 3. However, I'll begin with Psalm 144, 3 to 4, and you'll see why we're doing that as the sermon progresses. Hear now the word of the Lord, Psalm 144. O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil which he toils under the sun? Father, we ask now as we begin to look at this, uh, your book, Holy Spirit-inspired book, that you would speak to our hearts, and we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, one of the greatest debates, especially after we got done talking about you reaching out to your friends and unsafe friends and family members, maybe co-workers, one of the debates that comes up in every error is that of the existence of God. Does God even exist. Ours isn't the first generation to have men like Richard Dawkins who deny the existence of God and and do it pretty intellectually, or very sharp, uh, intellectually uh, minded men. And they won't be the last person to do it. It'll go on and on until the Lord returns and proves all atheists wrong. But that aside, uh, whenever such a debate takes place, 
whenever there is this conversation, uh, a theist in particular is going to bring up the point of meaning. Meaning, what do I mean by that? Well, when an atheist makes his case against the existence of God, it's very likely in that, that debate, and we're talking about formal debates here among intellectuals, a Christian intellectual versus an atheistic intellectual. A theist, that is a person who believes in God, will challenge the atheist worldview, asking them how they explain from their worldview that there is no God that there can be any meaning or significance in this world, in human life. See, for the atheist, man is the measure of all things. And if they believe that, that uh, that man is a cosmic accident, it just kind of happened, that our destiny is basically annihilation, that we simply cease to exist. We shouldn't have been here, but we were, and then when we die, we're gone, and there's nothing else. Well, then on that basis, how do you defend dignity and meaning in this life? Uh, The world-renowned philosophers would say this, and they'd wrestle with this, and and one of them came to the conclusion that uh, with atheism, as something they believed, that the only serious question left was the question of when to take your life, because it just doesn't matter. One of them said, man is just a useless passion, just a useless passion. Now, in response to that comment, a theist, a Christian named R.C. Sproul, went on to say this, it is one thing to be useless, it is quite another to have feelings about it. When we discard a piece of junk and throw it in the garbage, we declare it useless. If the object thrown away is a piece of metal scrap, we don't risk hurting its feelings. A metal scrap has no passion. It does not care about its destiny. It is mindless. It is feelingless. But if we discard a living human person, if we declare a living human person to be useless, that we are dealing with real passion. Human beings are caring creatures. They have feelings. They have passions. They care because what happens in their life matters to them. And see, that's the heart of the debate. A consistent atheist must declare that even though you feel like something matters in this world, that your life matters, that that it matters enough to be upset when things don't go your way or have joy when they do, an atheist has to say, well, that's not really true because nothing really matters. It, It matters to you, but doesn't mean that it matters ultimately. We may care about, uh, we may care, but the blind forces, they would say, of the universe do not care. They do not care at all. And so all that you're ultimately left with is a life of ultimate futility. And so when you ask the important questions, the questions concerning ultimate meaning and ultimate significance, and uh, we are really only left with two positions. Either human life matters ultimately or it does not. And for the atheist, it must be, if they are consistent, that it does not. There's no meaning of life. There's no significance to humanity. You may have heard the song, Nothing Really Matters 
anyone can see. Nothing really matters. Nothing really matters to me. Or there's another song. There's several songs that are about this very topic. I close my eyes only for a moment and the moment's gone. All my dreams pass before my eyes with curiosity, dust in the wind. All they are is dust in the wind. And see, if that's true, then turning to Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The NIV puts it meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Everything is empty. It's all pointless. It's all useless. It is all absurd. I made a joke that if I were to preach right now the first 12 chapters of Genesis, I could sum them up this way. Who cares and just walk out? It doesn't matter. It's all absurd. And that is what the book of Ecclesiastes actually sets out to show us. Life under the sun, that is life without God, is empty. It's pointless, it's useless, it's absurd, it's meaningless, it's vanity. And to make his point, the writer here will take everything that people ordinarily, you and me, give to bring meaning to our lives or to find satisfaction in this life and then show how each and every one of them are empty. If you look at verse 3, what he does is he asks and he answers the question, what does man gain by all the toil which he toils under the sun? And he'll leave no stone unturned. He's going to force us to ask the important questions, the tough questions. Where do we find true meaning? Where do we find true significance? Where do we find true dignity and purpose and value? What gain is there if there is any at all for all our toil in this world? That's the quest taken up by the preacher here in the book of Ecclesiastes. Again, R.C. Sproul says, no philosophical treatise has ever surpassed or equaled the penetrating analysis of the ultimate question of meaning versus vanity as that found in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so over the next few months, we're going to go on a tour with this man, this preacher, this this writer of Ecclesiastes, and uh, living a life as he does without God. That's how it's going to be portrayed. And we're going to be forced to ask penetrating questions about ourselves. We're going to learn about life, and uh, uh, that life in and of itself is unable to supply any answers that we really need to these important questions of our identity and meaning and purpose. When life is considered under the sun, uh, we are left with nowhere to turn for ultimate meaning. And so, because that's true, we're also going to learn that the only way we can come to know God, uh, the only way we can have meaning in this world is when we come to know God and find answers through Him. See, what this study does as we walk through this life of the writer is that it, it, it shows us that if the skeptic's right, there's no meaning, but we have to look beyond that. And so this could be really the most important biblical book we can study in our day, in a day of skepticism when people mock the idea of a God. We live in a world where people have no higher aspiration in life than to get home from work, open up a beer, and watch TV. And then, you know, to really can't wait till tomorrow when they do it all 
over again. There's no direction. There's no ultimate meaning. They have no destiny worth considering. They have no real purpose for living other than immediate gratification. Just, I work in order to have some money so I can have some gratification. And so I continually to pursue these trivial pursuits. And see, many Christians feel that way too. Uh, they can't rise above the mundane that happens in this world. They, they see no meaning. Life hurts. It's difficult. We see that in our world today, obviously, in light of the war. And although they believe in God, when they are at their most honest, their outlook on life isn't much different than the skeptic. Oh, believe, they believe in a world to come. We all do that. If we're believers, where there'll be joy and happiness, and there will be no more pain and no more worrying about it. But the here and now, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's how Christians sometimes feel. And so, here's why we're going to take a look at this book. Phil Riken explains one reason. If you wanted to have a commentary to help you understand the book of Ecclesiastes, pick up Dr. Riken's commentary. Um, it'll help you. And you'll hear a lot of what I say comes from his commentary. He says, you're going to study Ecclesiastes because it's honest about the troubles of life. And it teaches us what will happen if we choose what the world tries to offer instead of what God has to give. It's important to study because, as I said, it asks the big questions. What is the meaning of life? Uh, and the ones we think about as Christians, but we don't really ask out loud because others may think that we're not really spiritual, um, so we can't share our doubts. It's going to answer that. What is the meaning of life? Why am I so unhappy? Does God really care? Why is there so much suffering? Why is there so much injustice in the world? Is life really worth living? Uh, the writer is honest about every one of those questions. Herman Melville said of this book, it is the truest of all books. It's an honest about the drudgery of work. It's honest about the injustice of government. It's honest about the dissatisfaction we have with, with these pleasures that we pursue uh, and the mind-numbing tedium of everyday life. And that's the conclusion the writer comes to, even though he had all the money, he enjoyed all the pleasures, he possessed more human wisdom than anyone in the world. See, we could say, well, yeah, my life's mundane, but there's hope because I could win the lottery. And if I win the lottery, well, then I'll have the money to do what will give me meaning. And so this book helps us to understand that's not true, how by saying, here's a person who had it all, more than anyone, could have whatever they wanted, and yet vanity of vanity. And so it looks honestly at life's difficulties. It asks tough questions. It reminds us that life lived apart from God is not worth living and teaches us how to live for him and not for ourselves. Now, ultimately, we study a book like Ecclesiastes because it's part of the canon. It's part of the scriptures. It's written and inspired and inerrant word of God. And it helps us to worship and glorify God with our lives. And basically, one writer says, Ecclesiastes is a book for skeptics. It's a book for agnostics, for people on a quest to know the meaning of life, for people who are open to God but are not sure whether they can trust the Bible. It serves as a backdoor for believers who sometimes have their doubts. 
And it also serves as a gateway for unbelievers who are tired of living a meaningless existence. And they're tired of that. They can enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, which leads to a meaningful and significant life. And so as we go through this study, we're, we're going to need to be in prayer. Prayer that we take up the challenge of looking at this honestly and then answering these questions honestly and, and knowing that we are studying one of the most difficult books, most scholars say, in the whole of the Scripture. And so pray that your heart will be open to answering and asking these tough questions and, and then receiving the truth as it's presented in the Word. And so for this morning, as we begin the book, we're just doing an introduction. I'm kind of paving the way, giving you the lay of the, the land. We'll answer some introductory questions pertaining to the author. And that'll be a little bit longer than the rest, but the theme and then the meaning of some important words so that as we go into the book, we have this as a background. First, the author, look at verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, we need to identify the meaning of this word preacher. He uses the word three times in the beginning of the book, the preacher, then three times at the end and once in the middle. And the root of that word means to call to assembly, to gather together. And so you, have, you get the idea of preacher. That's how it's translated, preacher. The preacher gathers the people of God together to speak to them on something. And in this case, what we have, he calls them together. They hear his preaching on wisdom. That's the context of the title of the book. The word Ecclesiastes is Greek translation of the Hebrew word being translated preacher here in Ecclesiastes. Now, when you hear the word Ecclesiastes, you hear kind of the word ekklesia, which is the Greek word for assembly, for a gathering, as the church. Ecclesia is the church, a gathering or assembly of people for the worship of God. And that's what the word means here, the act of gathering the people of God. And so this preacher is gathering the people of God, but that doesn't tell us who the author is yet, does it? And so who is the author? Well, verse 1 continues, the words of the preacher, and so he's the one gathering them, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. Now, when you hear that, and you know a little bit of the history of the Old Testament and the Old Testament, you immediately think of Solomon. However, it's not necessarily a clear cut as that. First, Solomon's never mentioned here. In Proverbs, we, we read the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Here it doesn't say that. It says the preacher, son of David and king of Israel. But the name Solomon is left out here in Ecclesiastes. And so that has caused many to speculate, what is this all about? Did he write it, not write the book? Rather, what some would say is that the preacher is someone who took on the persona of being Solomon and then wrote this book from his point of view. And so that's their argument. In ancient times, it was fairly common, and this is true, for people to write fictional autobiographies. They would write it as if they were that person. And they wanted to com communicate a certain message a writer would take on that famous person. And so many scholars, including actually evangelicals, think that Ecclesiastes is that kind of book. Some believer took on this uh, royal autobiography, this person of Solomon. He's a well-known figure in history and used it to make a spiritual point. 
And, and that, in this case, he takes on the life of Solomon. Now, the book itself is based on the life of Solomon. Nobody argues that. When you look at the story of Solomon in the first Kings, and then you compare it to Ecclesiastes, there is no doubt that the connection is obvious. Let me give you just three examples. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. That's what Ecclesiastes says about this individual writing. And then we read in uh, 1 Kings 3, Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind. This is God speaking. So that none like you have been before you and none like you shall arise after you. Solomon explains, or the writer explains here, he had great wisdom, and Kings verifies that he was the wisest person to ever exist. Second, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, we read, I made great works, I built houses, I planted trees, I myself uh, made gardens and parks, I, I made pools, I bought male and female slaves, it says, and had slaves who were born in my house. I had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than anybody in Jerusalem. I had more gold and silver and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women. I had many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Imagine being able to live that way. Whatever you want, just take it. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. That's what Ecclesiastes says that this writer experienced. First Kings in chapter 7 says Solomon was unsurpassed in wealth. No one was wealthier than Solomon. First Kings 9 says that he had all these servants, just like this is the writer. First Kings 10 says that he had these buildings that he had built. He, he did a lot of building projects. And, and so the connection there is obvious. That's, that's a, another example. Final one. Ecclesiastes 12, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. Well, this is what First King tells us about Solomon. He was weighing and studying and arranging 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. And so Solomon's wisdom, his wealth, his servants, his buildings, arranging of Proverbs, his songs, all point to the fact that the book of Ecclesiastes is focusing on Solomon's life. Even the title fits Solomon. He gathered the people. We know he is a king, but we read in 1 Kings 8 that when Solomon dedicated the temple, what did he do? He, he gathered, assembled the people of Israel. And that's repeated over and over in, in Kings, that Israel formed an assembly, thus using the same language as Ecclesiastes. And so Solomon's connection to this book is clear. And so really there's only two possibilities, either this person took on the persona of Solomon or it's actually Solomon. Um, and the fact that no one ever questioned that it was actually Solomon for 1,600 years leads me to believe with confidence that it's Solomon writing this book. 
See, Solomon, and this is important because it it isn't just somebody kind of imagining what Solomon would think and say. It's actually him. See, after Solomon, the wisest man in the world, who walked away from God, falls into tragic sin, He eventually repents of his sinful ways. He returns to a proper fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. And so what Ecclesiastes become is his memoir. It's an autobiographical account of what he learned from that time when he walked away from the Lord and lived a futile and vain life without God. When Solomon was born, he was given another name. Um, in 2 Samuel 12, we're told, Jedediah, beloved of the Lord. He was promised that he would, his personal adoption and mercy as God's own son in 2 Samuel 7. Yet the Lord was angry with his son, we read. And when his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, 1 Kings 11, therefore the Lord appeared to him twice, to Solomon. Then he raised up adversaries against him and used him as a rod of affliction to turn Solomon from his backsliding. And so do you see the point? He was beloved of the Lord, but he walked away from the Lord, so God brought troubles into his life so that he would re- repent and turn back. And now, and now what we have here is his final testament of that journey he went through. It's as if he's saying, look, I walked with the Lord. I left the Lord. I had to come back. And this is what I learned. You don't have to go through the same experience as I did. And by the way, you couldn't do it better than me because I'm richer than you. I'm smarter than you. I had more than you, period. There was no exception. And that's why Solomon writes the book, which is our other point. Uh, For 12 chapters, he argues in great detail that the whole sum of human existence is utterly meaningless. I mean, this is dark. Imagine an assembly of Israel, he gets everybody together, and they come to listen to Solomon. Now it's later in his life, after he repented, and he wants to discuss an important problem, the problem of life itself. Is life really worth living? And and for 12 chapters, or 12 hours, 12 days of sermons, whatever you want to say, and, 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 and this is why, by the way, it's important that we identify This is Solomon as the author because Solomon knew how to live, as I just said. He was wiser. He was richer. And his wealth allowed him to enjoy life to its fullest. He gathers all these people. They know he had all the money, all the power, all the pleasure, and all the wisdom. And he's going to preach to them. And he's going to tell them that life under the sun is vanity of vanities. It's dark. Vanity of vanities. That word vanity... It comes, so, it comes up a lot in the book. And the word or phrase is used dozens of times in Ecclesiastes. Taken literally, it means basically a, a, a breath or vapor. It's like a puff of smoke rising from a fire, the cloud of steam that comes from a hot breath on a cold morning. And have you ever felt that life is kind of like that? It's fleeting. It's here and then poof, it's gone. It's so insubstantial that when we try to get our hands around life, it just slips through our fingers. There's no meaning. One translator translates this way, soap bubbles, soap bubbles, all this soap bubbles, and just poof, gone. 
and they no longer exist. That's why I read Psalm 144. Man is like a breath. His days are like passing shadow. All those days, according to Solomon, are ultimately meaningless. I mean, this is going to be fun to study. It is just one big vanity, vanity, meaningless life. And this is why people consider this a very dark and uh, pessimistic book. In addition to vanity, he uses the phrase under the sun. We talked about that. It's used 26 times. He tells us there's no advantage to work under sun. That's chapter 1, verse 3. There's nothing new under the sun. Chapter 1, verse 9. All our deeds are vanity under the sun. Chapter 1, verse 14. That all your hard work is vanity under the sun. Chapter 2, verse 11. That man is mortal under the sun. Chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. And although some pleasure is available, there's that fleeting pleasure. You can grab a hold of it. It's only temporary under the sun. Chapter 8, verse 15. Why is all this meaningless? Because all men must die under the sun. Chapter 9, verse 3. If all there is is here and now, all is meaningless. And all these things, and many more, I could have went on and on, and we'll do that as we walk through the book, make life meaningless under the sun. One writer says, it's almost as if Solomon speaks of life under the sun. We quickly realize it's an overcast day. Darkness looms on the distant horizon a precursor to an ominous storm, one that will inevitably envelop us. As the book opens in chapter 1, verse 2, so it comes to a close, chapter 12, verse 8. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And between those two bookends, very beginning of the book as we read, and the, and the end of the book, and between those bookends, the writer says the, it's like relentless Lightning bolts striking a house of hay. The word vanity will come down upon us 38 times, setting aflame all we have sought to accomplish. It's as if you're saying, you know, but I really enjoy vanity. I had a great time, vanity. When I got married at vanity. But we had children, vanity. I made riches vanity. It's just meaningless. The Debbie Downer at the um, wedding. It's great. Yeah, marriage is okay. That's what it's like. It's dark. It's very dark. When I moved here from Florida, I was used to sun in the winter. It gets dark at 4.30 here in the winter. And, 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 and it was, it was adjusting to that was difficult. But I can't imagine that this is, that is anything compared to Barrow, Alaska. You know about that? I found this illustration. 67 days, it is virtually dark in Alaska. Just dark. And then following those two winter months, the light begins to appear for a couple hours. That's it. And then gradually it grows until the summer months of June, July, and August. There's sunlight for 24 hours. Now, if you can survive those days to the sunlight, well, when you think of Ecclesiastes, that's why this illustration, when you think of Ecclesiastes, think of the night and day cycle in in Alaska there. That's how Ecclesiastes functions. From chapter 1 to chapter 12, verse 12. 
there is nothing but virtual darkness. Here and there, light appears, but it's not until verse 13 of chapter 12 that darkness begins to to fade and light shines. Verse 13 of chapter 12. The end of the matter. After I just told you, your whole life under the sun is terrible. It is nothing but darkness. All has been heard, he says. I've said it all. I lived it all. I presented it all. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. And even then, he doesn't sound like he's excited about it. But then he says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Well, that's exciting. Everything's worthless, and then you're judged. But see, that's where the book is heading. See, what Solomon is doing, like a pastor should, is showing us in great detail the absolute vanity of life without God. He's showing you that everything you do in the here and now is worthless apart from God. But if there is a God, even if it's judgment, now everything you do has meaning. And that's what it's about. And so we should stop, he's saying, stop expecting earthly things to give us lasting satisfaction. How many of you do? I know I fall into this trap. Just one more of this. If I only had just that, then I'd be satisfied. And you get that. It's like Christmas for kids. I remember my one daughter, my oldest daughter, when she was like four or five, she wanted this doll. And anything to get this doll. You understand this? Oh, I just want, you don't have to get me anything else forever. Just get me this doll. So I loved buying my children things. I got her this doll and it sat in the box and she took it out of the box and it was sitting in the basement. We lived in Jersey at the time. We had basements. And she got the doll and hardly ever played with it. But it was the last thing she needed until when? The next thing. Because it can't give full satisfaction. That's what Solomon wants us to understand. And so as we close on this introductory sermon, um, let me remind you, vanity, emptiness, nothingness, meaningless, futility does not have the last word. It doesn't have the last word in the book of Ecclesiastes. And let me say, as doomy and gloomy as your life may feel, it doesn't have the last word in your life if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The Bible says that because of our sin, all creation is subjected to futility. That's Paul's word in Romans 8. It's the same word used in Ecclesiastes that we call vanity. And so do you see it? It's because of sin that life under the sun is meaningless and frustrating and empty and, 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 and often feels like, why bother? That's because of sin. But the good news is, and this is why the book pushes us, compels us to look to Christ, Jesus suffered the curse of sin in all its futility when he died on the cross. For us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who's hanged on a tree, says Paul. And so now... By the power of Christ, by the power of his death and his resurrection, the emptiness of life is undone. He does away with it. 
The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, says Romans 8, 21. Think about it. Ecclesiastes will tell us that our work is futile under the sun. We're going to look in that in detail. At times, it's going to seem like, didn't he preach this last week? And the answer is going to be, yes, I did. But Solomon repeats it. And Paul tells us, though, he who began a new, a new work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. Paul says if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are new, 2 Corinthians 5. Ecclesiastes will tell us that we're mortal under the sun. John tells us whoever believes in him should not perish but has everlasting life. Ecclesiastes tells us that pleasure is temporary under the sun. Paul tells us, for it is God who works in you both the will and the do for his good pleasure. Ecclesiastes tells us we cannot discover God's work under the sun. But Paul tells us, now I know in part, but then, then I shall know just as I am known, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. And Ecclesiastes tells us all men must die under the sun. But John tells us God has given us eternal life, eternal life in his son. See, life under the sun may cease, as Ecclesiastes says, but in Christ you may know that you have eternal life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, 1 John five thirteen. And so, do you see what happens? Christ brings about this great reversal. He turns life under the sun on its head. It's all darkness, and then Christ's light shines in the middle of it. He causes us to look beyond this world and to look to another world. And so the great lesson of Ecclesiastes is going to be to teach us that true fulfillment, true significance, true meaning, true life can only be found in Jesus Christ. And we're going to be told it over and over and over until it gets into our minds, you will not find pleasure in this world apart from Christ. And so my word to you as we we study this book and look at it, is to look to Jesus Christ. Even now, you don't have to wait till the end of the book. Learn your lesson early. Look to Christ now. Look to him today. Look to him and find your identity. Look to him and find your meaning. Look to him and find your significance and purpose in this world. Why continue in meaningless existence, living day to day, knowing that it ultimately just doesn't matter? This is what Jesus said. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? That's the message of Ecclesiastes. What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? The answer is nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And so stop looking to work. Stop looking to possessions. Stop looking to wisdom or pleasure to bring you fulfillment. Look beyond the sun. I'll give Paul the last word. 
Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And so dispel the darkness, dispel the meaninglessness, and look to Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we as believers struggle here. And so my prayer this morning is for those who do not know Christ in this way, who have not come to a saving knowledge of, of, of what he has brought to us through his life and death and resurrection. And Father, their lives, they may be kidding themselves, but they're, they're living in a darkness and a meaningless existence. And I pray that you would pull them out of it, shine the light of Christ into their hearts that they may believe. And that, Father, we would demonstrate to a lost and dark and meaningless world where true meaning comes from as we follow your Son. In Christ's name, amen.